Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trump Hour Mulholland Foundation, creators of the Civil Rights Veterans Relief Fund to help veterans of the movement with food, medical housing, and utility bills. Details online at jtmfoundation.org. The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders weeknights at 6. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up on the show tonight, we'll spend the hour with Felicia Maxfield Barrett of the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. In 2004, the nonprofit began hosting the Ambassador John Price and Marcia Price World Affairs Lecture Series. It recently wrapped with two conversations we'll share parts of with you this evening. So coming up, you'll hear from Judith Goldstein, founder and executive director of Humanity in Action, and Charles Person, an original freedom writer. These two lectures wrapped the 2020-2021 season and under the banner of Racism and the Rise of Nationalism, an exploration of racism. Felicia will join us in a moment to explain more. But first, rallies and resources. If you go to krcl.org, click on Community Affairs, you'll find rallies and resources, a list of upcoming events and grassroots resources curated by the Radioactive team. It's time to come out of hibernation and off the keyboard and into the community, plenty of ways to get involved and help out in the community. There you'll find a link to the Emergency Rental Assistance Program that can help renters who are unable to pay their rent and utilities due to circumstances related to COVID-19. We've also got a link there for the Sundance Film Festival's short film program focusing on Indigenous shorts. This month, Sundance invites you to join them at museums, native cultural centers, and art house cinemas for an 85-minute program of shorts curated from recent editions of the festival, all helmed by indigenous filmmakers from around the world. All you gotta do is click to watch. Going on as we speak and wrapping up at Warm Springs Park on Saturday, running as Medicine Indigenous Youth Prayer Run in partnership with the Utah Division of Indian Affairs and Navajo Strong, Salt Lake City Air Protector's second annual 2021 Running as Medicine Indigenous Youth Prayer Run began at Bears Ears National Monument and wraps up at Warm Springs on the north end of Salt Lake City on Saturday. It's a 360-mile journey, five days of running, mentorship, and endurance to draw attention to issues surrounding COVID-19. And if you go to Rallies and Resources, all sorts of links to follow along on Facebook, as well as support the run. May is Bike Month, and tomorrow is Bike to Work Day. Green Bike, all you need is a code, which is 2021 at any kiosk, to take as many 30-minute trips as you want, courtesy of support from Select Health. Those events and resources, and much more, can be found on the Rallies and Resources page of krcl.org. And now joining the show, we have Felicia Maxfield Barrett, Executive Director of the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Hi, Felicia. How are things going today? Oh, things are things are great. Um, it's beautiful outside. It's not snowing and we're in May, so it's a really great day in Utah. I don't know. We're pre-recording this. It could be snowing by the oh, time no. it airs. <laughs> Utah <laughs> spring and all. I wanted to share excerpts from two webinars, uh, well, virtual lectures that you offered recently um, mm-hmm. that really fit with our Changing the Narrative conversations we've been having on Thursday. And I wanted you to set these up for us and give us some context. But first, Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy, give us the 411 so folks who are new to this conversation can understand a bit about the work that you do there. 
Yeah. So we are a local nonprofit um, bringing the world to Utah and connecting Utah to the world. Um, and, and our whole mission is to promote respect and understanding between the people of Utah and other nations using our guiding principle, which is citizen diplomacy. And it's, you know, this is where I definitely nerd out in the fact that we can help shape foreign relations. And we do it as simply as one handshake at a time. Um, the last year has been interesting in that it hasn't been one handshake. It certainly has been one Zoom meeting, one phone call, one you know YouTube lecture at a time. But the idea is, is that we're still seeing movement and it's just people to people connecting with one another and learning about each other. And, you know, in this day and age, it seems like that dialogue and that conversation is so necessary to really build the bridges between different ideas, different perspectives, different values. We're not having enough conversations these days. I know. And I'm thinking about where we were a year ago in lockdown, but people in the streets over social justice issues. We're coming up on the year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd in the streets of Minneapolis. And uh, one of the conversations we're going to share tonight, or an extended portion of, I think can really get at some of those issues. First of all, tell us about the World Affairs Lecture Series that you pivoted to virtual this year. Yeah, so um, we, we had a really tough conversation last year about what do we do with these conversations? And at first it was, oh, well, people aren't going to want to watch, uh, you know, conversations online. They really like that in-person uh, dialogue, um, it, you know, so let's go ahead and put it on hold. But then with everything that was happening in 2020 and, and people reaching out to us saying, what are the experts saying around these different areas, whether it was COVID and a vaccine, whether it was social justice, whether it was climate change, we realized that there was still this thirst for knowledge and education for the constituents that we were serving. And so we picked up our, our World Affair Lecture Series. You know, normally it's hosted in person with our partners, Westminster Campus or Westminster College. Um, you know, and it's it's generously spon uh, sponsored by Ambassador Price and his lovely wife, Marcia Price. And it really covers what is going on in the world and how does it have a local impact here in Utah? Um, with the, the segments that you're going to show today is sort of a spinoff of the World Affair Lecture Series in that we call it the tipping point because where we have been focusing on these global issues that have a local impact here in Utah, we've noticed that there are some unique domestic issues that are taking place that are now tipping over into the international arena. Uh, social justice around racism and um, inequality is definitely one of those issues where it seems to have been a uniquely American issue, but we're recognizing that it is spilling over into the international arena, especially around conversations of nationalism, um, and and closing of borders. So coming up this hour, we're going to hear uh, from Judith Goldstein, founder and executive director of Humanity in Action. It's part of what you're calling racism and the rise of nationalism and exploration of racism, the U.S. and beyond. But part one that we're going to excerpt here is with Charles Person, an original freedom writer. There was one part that he... Um, the author asked him a question. It's towards the end about 
you know, for, for Charles, it was, you know, buses were coming. He needed to hop on the bus. That was his call to action. And how do we know as everyday citizens when our buses are coming? Um, And I thought his answer was just so beautiful in that you just know it keeps you up at night. It's what worries you throughout the day. You just have this, this nagging feeling that you've got to do something to change. Um, and, and that's really what we're all about is it doesn't matter if your passion is climate change, if your passion is hunger and poverty, if it's gender equality, if it's basic human rights, there is a bus with your name on it and you need to hop on it and make a positive change in the world. And that segment, his answer is just so beautiful to exactly what our mission is and what we want to see accomplished with everyday people. Felicia, thank you so much for giving us some time to set up these two conversations. Uh, Folks, check the show notes tonight for links to the full conversations, as well as Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. But people can find that online where? Um, UtahDiplomacy.org, and then go to our events section for the World Affair Lecture Series. Let's go to the tape, so to speak. Here is UCCD's Emma Russell introducing a conversation between original freedom writer Charles Person and author Richard Rooker. Together they wrote Buses Are a Comin', Memoir of a Freedom Writer. Charles Person is one of two living freedom writers who remain the original, who remain from the original ride. It start in Washington, D.C., all the way to New Orleans. This historic event helped to defeat Jim Crow laws in the United States, and we'll hear a lot about it today. Person maintains active contact with schools, museums, um, and is an activist in the community. He lives in Atlanta. Richard Rooker is an English teacher and history educator, writing coach, and longtime personal friend of Person. He's an active board member of the Indiana Historical Society. All right. And with that, welcome, Charles and Richard. The floor is yours. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, good evening. And thank you, Emma. I'm Richard Rooker, co-author of Charles Person's just released book, as Emma said, Buses Are Coming, Memoir of a Freedom Rider. Charles and I are excited to be here this evening because we appreciate the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy's mission to promote respect and understanding between the people of Utah and other people, and that you foster citizen diplomacy through meaningful person-to-person interaction. So tonight, We want, Charles and I, want to interact together with you one metaphorical handshake at a time. So Charles, I have some questions for you. All set? I guess so. Yes, I'm ready. All right, well, let's go. Um, So I'd like to start, Charles, by having you tell our viewers briefly what Freedom Ride 1961 was and why Freedom Ride 1961 was necessary. Very good question. Freedom Rides essentially was a test. It was a test to see if the South would honor uh, the Sioux Supreme Court decisions uh, and to see if they would comply. And the answer was a resounding no in most cases. Um, it was necessary because most of the people in the nation, was, was they were not aware of how Jim Crow affected uh, Black people. We were Riders who had paid a full fare, but we were treated entirely different. And that was one of the reasons why it was essentially uh, necessary that we we undertake this particular project. Well, we'll come back to the Freedom Rides for sure, Charles, but I'd like to explore just a little bit 
the nature of protest, demonstration, and resistance to bring about needed change in society. So can you tell us what strategies you utilized in the Atlanta student movement and on the Freedom Rides that were effective against the segregationists you faced? Uh, our methods of protest varied. Uh, we had marches and this was to demonstrate uh, the solidarity of the students. Uh, we had we conducted sit-ins, uh, wait-ins. We did everything to upset and disrupt business as usual. And the idea is that we had to get someone's attention. Uh, you know, uh, we, as Americans, sometimes we forget how people in other states and other regions live. And I guess the black people in the South had been uh, screaming out for years and years and years and no one was listening. But once the students started the sit-ins and that led to uh, all kinds of uh, demonstrations and, and boycotts. And finally, I think the culmination of the sit-in movement was the Freedom Rides because Freedom Rides incorporated uh, not only sit-ins, but uh, other forms of protest. But the idea was to get people to understand what was happening to us and to develop people to support us and to be our allies and to help us win our freedom and to break down the laws of, of Jim Crow. Well, uh, so these strategies you used, I wanna draw a delineation here with civil disobedience. So civil disobedience, you know, both Mohandas Gandhi and Dr. King both believe strongly in civil disobedience, the principle that we must resist unjust laws, but the freedom rides, Charles, were not really civil disobedience. They were instead nonviolent direct action. Can you explain the difference between those? Sure. Uh, civil disobedience is, is when you protest unfair laws or you are laws that you feel that are unjust. But we were protesting the fact that the law had been passed in our favor. We were complying with the law. It was the states that didn't allow us to uh, use all the facilities and ride the buses where we, we, where we should. Uh, they were the ones breaking the law. So civil disobedience is, is disobeying a law, a lawful order, a lawful law, law. whereas we were uh, demonstrating against uh, it's a system where we are already allowed to uh, have access to these particular facilities. Yeah, and and uh, Gandhi in his teachings, uh, actually in this book right here, Satyagraha, Nonviolent Resistance, uh, teaches, and I'm I'm going to quote from there. We must give greater value to the adjective civil than to the noun disobedience. Um, and we just talked about how the freedom rights were not civil disobedience, but they put an emphasis certainly on being civil. So can you talk to us about the ways that the students in both the Atlanta student movement and the riders on the freedom rides practiced the action, the intentional action of being civil? Well, civil relates to ordinary people. Um, we were ordinary passengers doing ordinary things in an ordinary country, and we were not allowed to do them. Uh, and that, that is a, the essence of what we were about. Um, and to maintain our civility, uh, we always, always maintained that everyone who participated had to be nonviolent. That was, that was the key. You had to be nonviolent. 
and I know that for James Farmer, at least of core, part of it was to provoke a crisis perhaps. I mean, ideally you would be able to travel as normal passengers on normal buses, but uh, perhaps provoke a crisis where your civility would be in contrast to the incivility aligned against you and society would, would have to make a choice against that. Um, and I really admire how you were able to maintain your civility in the midst of all the violence that you faced uh, on your freedom ride. Um, so Charles, your, your freedom ride journey starts on May 4th, 1961, right about this time. Yeah, uh, yeah. 60 years ago in Washington, DC. But I think we could say your path to the journey started a lot earlier than that. I think, I think we could pick a few places. So one place we might start is in your not being able to eat at the Majestic Diner in Atlanta as a teenager, actually a 12 year old, when non-white international college students were able to eat there, but you weren't. Tell us about that and how that affected you. Well, that was my first encounter uh, openly, uh, a situation where no one could explain to me what was going on. I was at the Majestic uh, Diner and it still exists today. And uh, I wanted, I had uh, left my lunch at home. So I had to eat out this particular day. And when we go to the Majestic Diner and we get there and I go to a booth and that's a no-no. And then my colleagues, the other fellow pinboys, they explained to me that I couldn't sit down and eat. Yet there were students from Georgia Tech, from Iran and other places, many of them as dark as I was, and yet they were allowed to eat. So I couldn't understand if, if color was a problem, uh, you know, it shouldn't have been, you know, I was as dark as they were. Uh, and it was my first attempt to uh, deal with how racism was not so much about a matter of color as a matter of origin. You know, so if I had been a, a foreigner, uh, they would have had no problem serving me. But since I was just a native aboard the South, but I just had to have a little bit of melanin in my uh, pigment, uh, that was not sufficient to get me lunch that particular day. But it was it was a it was a difficult lesson to learn. Uh, but it's it stuck. It stuck. Yeah. Believe me. Yeah. Another place your journey, we could think of your journey starting on the road to your activism was when you were rejected as a senior in high school from attending Georgia Tech after being accepted at MIT. So how did, how did that rejection put you on your path to activism? You know, a lot of times, some situations and certain things cannot be explained. And, uh, you know, I was encouraged to be a good student and to obey my parents and do those things that are right. So uh, I couldn't ex not accept the fact that I was being rejected. Um, and uh, Georgia Tech made it very difficult because it wasn't a matter of academics. They didn't reject me because of academics. They didn't reject me because of race, but they did reject me because I could not get two members of the alumni to recommend me, which they knew were in most cases would be almost impossible uh, for, for a black person to get uh, previous graduates to support you. Um, it, and it hurt. Like I said, they, there was no way my parents or anyone could explain to me the logic. 
you know, if, uh, MIT was one of the most prestigious universities in the country. Georgia Tech was a very good school too. And, you know, I met all the qualifications. Otherwise, I couldn't understand. And it was difficult for anyone to explain to me why it was not accepted. And uh, Charles, I think a, a third place we might think of your journey to activism and the Freedom Rides starting is when you joined the Atlanta student movement to desegregate the Atlanta restaurants and department stores uh, when you reached Morehouse College, which led to your going to jail and even solitary confinement. So why did you join the Atlanta student movement? The Atlanta student movement gave me an opportunity to do something about uh, some of the early things that had happened to me. Uh, if we had been, if we were gonna be successful, then all the things that I had complained about earlier would have been, would no longer be a problem. So that was a motivation. Uh, also uh, getting with other students, you realize that uh, the situation in other parts of the country was not like it was in the South. I mean, the other kids, they had to conform from the North and the West who came to Morehouse, they had to conform to Jim Crow laws and they weren't used to that. So they're letting us know what life was like uh, in New York and Chicago and other places really just kind of perked your interest. So uh, that along with other things, uh, you know, his was an opportunity for me to do something and I, I volunteered. Yeah, and in your uh, activism with the Atlanta student movement, you get arrested and you end up in solitary confinement for uh, sitting on a lunch stool and with two of your colleagues that you called yourselves the gorillas and 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 there's a meat cleaver story just just touch on that for a second uh i've never been confronted with a meat cleaver before there was one restaurant that was very popular in atlanta especially during the lunch hour because it had very good food and it was a great location and uh i used to like to go there because they had about 40 uh stools at the lunch counter well, uh, Leon and uh, Leon Green and Frank Holloway and myself, uh, the three of us could go into a, a, a lunchroom that size and shut it completely down. Uh, and we spread out because whites didn't want to sit near us. So instead of you know them have a portion of the, of the counter, they had none. But this one day the manager came out with meat cleaver and he brandished it and he threatened us and everything. But uh, one of the good things, one of the uh, sit-ins with me was Hank Frank Holloway. And uh, he was a big man. He was about 6'4". And when he would cross his arm, he looked down on people. And he was very intimidating, but he was as meek as a lamb. Mm -hmm. So I always liked to be near Frank because I was so small. I was, <laughs> I was only 5'6 and 126 pounds. So I wasn't much of a threat to anybody. But, but being in, in, in Frank's presence made it a lot easier to deal with situations like the meat cleaver, because even though the guy had a meat cleaver, he still was intimidated by Frank. Well, yeah, and, and you just said you, you like to be near Frank, but you and Frank and Leon weren't, as I think I would have been, one, two, three, sitting side by side by side. Why, why did you spread out? Well, you, we spread it out because that way we could uh, eliminate more people from the lunch counter. In fact, it got to the point where we could strategically place ourselves and the lunch counter would be completely shut down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was amazing when you when you taught me how you intentionally spread out. 
because no one wanted to, no whites wanted to sit next to a black. And if you sat together, you had, you'd have two empty seats, but if you spread out, you'd have lots of empty seats uh, between you. That, you know, I think that, I think that was clever. Um, so, so how did you actually become one of the original 13 Freedom Riders? Love probably more than it. Well, uh, I like others applied when uh, Corey sent out, the Congress of Racial Equality sent out uh, an edict. They wanted to uh, draft people to become Freedom Riders. Well, nobody knew what a Freedom Rider was in those days. But anytime I, to, to fight segregation at any place, anytime, I would have volunteered. Uh, but still, there was no guarantee that I was going to be selected. I, along with several other members from Atlantis, applied. And for some reason, I was selected. And many years later, I found out that one of the reasons I think that I was selected because I was relatively squeaky clean. I hadn't lived long enough to do too many things. The only thing bad thing I had in my record was I had been in jail for 16 days. But I was in jail for a good reason. I wasn't there for any felony or anything like that. But uh, other than that, uh, I think that's the only reason. Because CORE wanted to make sure that there were no uh, information that would distract from what they were trying to do. They didn't want me to get arrested. And they were talking more about my personal life than about my desire to integrate um, a lunch counter or, 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 or restroom. So, so we want to know about the Freedom Ride journey itself and what that was like. And uh, Charles, the Utah Council's logo is two people shaking hands on a bridge. And the other night at a session, the last question the moderator had for you was, what is the best advice you have to give us as we leave this conversation? And you answered that question with just three words. You said, make a friend. And part of your Freedom Ride journey was meeting white riders, many of them decades older than you, and you were surprised by them, uh, but you made friends. So tell us about the white riders you formed friendships with and the surprise they were to you. You have to remember what I said earlier. Um, there are a lot of things that happened that I couldn't explain. And in Atlanta student movement, we had very few whites. I think maybe one white person that participated. So when I got to uh, DC for the training and I see these white people and I'm wondering, wow, what, why are they here? I didn't know their backgrounds. I didn't know very much about them. Some of the names I had heard, but I didn't know anything extensively about it. So what I did is, you know, to try to pick their brains to find out, you know, what motivated them. And boy, I tell you, with the information I found out, I mean, you had educators, you had millionaires, you had uh, Navy captains, you had people of all walks of life. And I'm saying, you know, if these people can risk their wealth, their status in life uh, for, for my freedom and the freedom of millions of black people throughout the country, then surely as a black boy, I can work uh, for our freedom. So it, it, it intensely motivated me, but I was always curious. And as I got to know them better, they became, uh, we bonded tremendously. In fact, the Bergmans, uh, said they were more like my mother and father, and they said they would take care of me. And uh, they tried, they did. And uh, these are, there are situations that I can never forget and would not want to forget because that's how meaningful they were to me and it, they are to me. So in your book, Charles, I wanna move now briefly to 
the imperative of today's youth to take up causes that are meaningful to them the way you did 60 years ago. In your book, Charles, you turn the words of the song, buses are a coming, which was literally true, buses were coming to the South, into an extended metaphor that buses of change are always a coming and it's imperative that youth climb aboard them. So uh, how does a person know when a change bus is opening its door for them? You know when it's time because there will be things that will happen in your life and you can't get them out of your head. You can't, you can't rationalize them. And you realize that if, if anything's going to happen, if it's going to change, it's going to have to be you. Uh, you, you realize this, and a lot of times we're reluctant and we try to put it off. We'll talk with our friends, and, that, and that's a good thing because that's how movements are started. One it starts with one person. But the thing is, when your bus comes along, whether it's metaphysical or otherwise, you'll know because your, your, your soul will not be at rest. And the reason I say that, uh, uh, there was a situation recently when uh, George Floyd was killed. I was so upset and I was so angry that I called a friend of mine who uh, runs the Freedom Island National Monument. And I told him, I said, hey, we can do things. We know how to do demonstrations without having violence. We can do it nonviolently. And we should be a, a spokesperson for these actions. And out of that conversation evolved the Freedom Riders Training Institute, which will be a full-pronged program where we will develop a curriculum that will train policemen, first responders, demonstrators or people who want to demonstrate and also educators. And hopefully, but that's how I channel the energy. I'm going to march, can't march anymore, but I can do other things. And that's the idea is that when your bus comes, you're gonna, you will know it because you will be compelled to do something. You'll have to do something. Yeah, that, that call of do something from your grandfather whom you called Papa uh, is very, very strong in you do something. So I wanna come back to that make a friend comment that you made the other night uh, in a conversation. And, and you are one of the most positive, hopeful people I've ever met despite the experiences you've been through. So, so I have two questions for you. One, why are you so hopeful? And two, why is making a friend such a clarion call of yours? One thing I've learned as I've gotten older, there are a lot of good people in this world. And they are not of one color. There, I, I've met of all races, all religions, and that encourages me because I know that we are we are in good hands. Uh, sometimes we don't work together, we don't work collaboratively, uh, but I know that it exists, and I know it exists because two days ago we had a hurt a tornado that landed about two and a half miles from us, and like always, Americans, what do we do? We roll up our sleeves. And we get out there and we get the job done. But that's always has been the case. And I know we will continue to do that. Original freedom writer, Charles Person, whose memoir is Buses Are a Coming, a freedom writer's journey written with author Richard Rooker. Check tonight's show notes for a link to the full UCCD lecture with Person and Rooker. I'm Laura Jones, and this is Radioactive. When we come back, more from the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy's World Affairs Lecture Series, Racism and the Rise of Nationalism, an Exploration of Racism, the U.S. and Beyond, on KRCL. 
May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and all month long, KRCL brings you Mental Health Mondays with tips and resources from local experts. Join us for the month as we help raise awareness about mental health. Find a list of resources at krcl.org. Welcome back to Radioactive on KRCL. I'm Laura Jones. Coming up at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Thursday Night Psych with DJ Mike at 8 o'clock. Gianni and the Dirty Boulevard check in at 10.30. Followed by Rich's I Don't Sound Like Nobody at 1 a.m. Illustrated Blues with Jolene at 3 a.m. And then start your last day of the week with a brand new day and John Florence at 6 a.m. Although Shell Yeah is filling in for him this week. Tonight on Radioactive, clips from the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy's World Affairs Lecture Series. We already heard from original freedom writer Charles Person, whose memoir is Buses Are a Common, A Freedom Writer's Journey. Check tonight's show notes for a link to that book. Person's lecture was half of UCCD's Racism and the Rise of Nationalism series, An Exploration of Racism, the U.S. and Beyond. Felicia Maxfield-Barrett will join us at the end of the hour to talk about what may be coming up in the fall when the series starts again. But for now, here's Emma Russell from the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy to introduce Judith Goldstein, founder and executive director of Humanity in Action. Now I am so pleased to introduce our guest speaker, Dr. Judith Goldstein. She received a bachelor's degree from Cornell University in 1962 with a concentration on European and American history. In 1972, Judith completed her doctoral studies at Columbia University after writing her dissertation on the politics of ethnic pressure, the American Jewish Committee fight against immigration restriction, 1906 to 1917. This work was the beginning of a sustained concentration on immigration and diversity in America and Europe. In the late 1980s, she worked as the executive director of Thanks to Scandinavia, started by the Danish pianist Victor Borg to acknowledge Scandinavians who resisted Nazism and protected Jews during the Second World War. In 1997, Judith founded Humanity in Action and began to serve as its executive director where she remains today. Welcome, Judith. Thank you. I, I want to apologize ahead of time. You may hear wrestling papers, but that's because I'm going to read this talk to you. And um, as I move from page to page, you might hear it, but uh, I apologize. But the topic is so, um, is, is, is so difficult to, to deal with that I want to be very careful about everything that I say. So let me start off by thanking uh, the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy for providing this opportunity for all of us to think about race and nationalism. Uh, the organizers have put together two enormous topics in a way that is really quite provocative, uh, challenging, and, and even jarring. To think about race by itself and nationalism by itself is an enormous task but now I need to join them. And not easy for all of us to think about and not particularly easy or comfortable in these fractured and unsettled times for this country and for so many others in Europe. And then to make the challenge even greater, the authors of this conference have asked for a broad international perspective on the two topics. Well, let me begin with framing the geographical contours of this inquiry. 
My focus is on the US and Europe. I do not mean to imply that race and nationalism are unimportant, are unimportant in Latin America, Asia, and Africa. They are, uh, but I confess to having such limited knowledge that I would probably mislead you if I attempted to include them. In the past 500 or 600 years, populations in Europe and the US have had much experience with the intertwining forces of race and nationalism. The combination seems obvious to us now as they were built into powerful systems of governing and historical memory. But they are creations that satisfy human needs for making and sustaining identity and community, power, hierarchy and wealth, religion and secular systems and beliefs. We invented concepts of race and nationalism and we're stuck with them. At this moment, I think race is the most volatile and the dangerous idea of the two, an idea that is so strong that it continues to jolt the foundations of our societies. The tensions are so deep that they frequently defy reality and truth. The dangerous explosion of false news and conspiracy theories circulating on the internet and television and radio takes much of its strength from racism and nationalism. In this regard, the distortions of truth, distortion is not new, it's just the mega rapidity and reach of dissemination. Humans invented the concept of race. They use it to exploit other human beings, to gain profit, and to justify war after war. We now know that categorizing people by race is unscientific and wrong, especially as it is used as a tool of oppression and violence but it's baked into our Western history. What do you do when the term has been proven to be scientifically bogus, but the impact remains powerful and a critical part of what we are or of who we are? Race is semantically speaking meaningless, but almost eternal in our cultures and histories. In countries like France and Germany, race is a forbidden word and category for academic and governmental investigations into the workings of those societies. Employing the word is poisonous, and yet the poison remains deep in the system and the behaviors of our societies. We finally come to the time that denial of and ignorance about race are no longer valid options. Oppression produced twisted and deformed national narratives that mostly serve those in power. They continue for all too many to inform contemporary beliefs. The fundamental contest continues between those who cling to race and sustain hierarchies, those who have power and control over the resources of a society versus those who are discriminated against and who seek equity in the name of democracy and pluralism. I wrote my doctoral dissertation, The Politics of Ethnic Pressure, in the early 1970s. It focused on immigration history, specifically the escape of Eastern European Jews to the US in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. 
Their presence in America caused a significant backlash among white Anglo-Saxon Americans, who by the 1920s restricted immigration from all countries except white Western European nations. The white Protestant custodians of national identity defined America in terms of race, and not just in terms or in regard to blacks and to Asians, but Eastern European Jews, Italians, and Slavs. I was totally focused on anti-Semitism, which seemed to me to be beyond the reach of racism. For that reason, I ignored the relevant history of slavery, the Civil War, Jim Crow, and its tendrils across America. If I were researching and rewriting today, I would have, I would have to address these issues in a totally different manner. Let, let me explain further. My narrative centered on the contest between Anglo-Saxon identity and pluralism, between the Protestant establishment and American Jews who perceived the United States as a refuge for the oppressed in Europe. The late 19th and early 20th century history now must be understood not only in terms of traditional anti-Semitism and resistance to it, but also within the multifaceted global forces of colonialism and anti-Black and anti-Asian radical ideologies. By the late 19th century, white nations openly prided themselves as progressive, post-enlightenment, scientifically-based societies built on a Darwinian survival of the fittest and a hierarchical order, ordained a hierarchical ordained order of races. Cloaked in robust nationalism, white nations rapaciously acquired new wealth and conquered overseas lands. Racism anointed itself with the scientific name of eugenics. The result was the multifaceted formulation of racial theories and studies. They provided a spurious body of thought and prejudice to underlie discriminatory legal and illegal needs. They sustained Jim Crow in the US South, reinforced practices of segregation in Northern and Western states, and restricted immigration in the country as a whole. Race was ever present residing within the physical boundaries of America, as well as Australia and Canada. American racism in particular was cloaked in the language of democratic ideals and practices. The sacred right of self-governance was allotted to racists and to nationalists. They hoarded the benefits of their democracy for white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males. Their assumption of power and governing was justified through the lens of inferior primitive peoples, Native Americans, Blacks, and Blacks who were brought to this country in slavery and immigrants as well. Racism meshed perfectly with a long-held Christian anti-Jewish Anti and anti-Semitic beliefs and practices. Thus the toxic roots of both fear and hatred of Jews and blacks 
grew from the same ground of beliefs about inferior and superior races. Sadly, my dissertation missed all of those multifaceted connections. It was written in the zeitgeist of an accepted narrative about race, nationalism, and nation in the idealization of white Anglo-Saxon history. My story was about Jews wanting to be part of the American nation. But the fuller, more accurate history could not just be about anti-Semitism. Today, it would have to include colonialism and broad-based racial hierarchies. Fortunately, in the past decades, there has been a proliferation of scholarly literature about the disastrous impact of 19th and 20th century racial ideologies and policies. Significant studies now document the global scale of race-based immigration restriction. And these include uh, works, The Gods of the Upper Air by Charles King and Defending the Master Race by Jonathan Spiro and Drawing the Global Color Line by Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds. Also the Science and Politics of Racial Research by William Tucker and The Color of Empire, Race and American Foreign Relations by Michael Crenn. I've been speaking in generalities, but let me turn to some specific similarities and differences between the struggles of the American civil rights movement, which continue today, racism in Europe and the rise of nationalism. On both sides of the Atlantic, we're confronting the lasting impact of colonialism, focused on black and brown people, as well as indigenous peoples, which revolved around race, money, armies, and territorial expansion. The US and Europe also share the legacy of hostility towards Jews. It was a fundamental aspect of Christianity, expressed through powerful religious narratives, rituals, and iconography, including master paintings and grotesque caricatures. Over centuries, the suspicions and anger towards Jews was realized through restrictions on Jewish life, violence and expulsions from various countries. The eugenics movement intensified the traditional hatred of Jews by casting them or castigating them as a dangerous and infected race. This combination of religious and racial fears, hatred and obsessions culminated in the convulsions of the Second World War and the Holocaust. Germany plunged into racial madness from the late 1920s until 1945. From 1939 to 1945, Germany imposed its fascist power and racist beliefs in small part modeled after Jim Crow laws and fashioned them for the rest of Europe. Expulsions of Jews were no longer enough. Annihilation was, nece was necessary and required. As a result, six million Jews died. The mission was accomplished relatively fast. Post-war Europe was essentially rid of its Jewish population or its Jewish problem and its population. And in the aftermath of the Second World War, eugenics was out. Racism couldn't be openly admitted or used as a policy 
once the democracies brought Germany to overwhelming defeat. Employed against Jews, a racial problem was taken care of. They were gone, murdered. Few Jews remained in Europe. Many went to Israel and to the US. The Western world held Germany responsible for the genocide, although other European countries played their sinister roles. Thus Germany forbade using the word race or openly tolerating racist ideologies and parties. Human rights were deified over many decades. So this is the tidy part, so to speak. But in the post-war years, Europe also started to disentangle itself from its colonial holdings in Africa, Asia, and the Caribbean. In regard to Europe's other racial issues, each of the former colonial powers has had to deal with the sudden presence of those who migrated to the colonial mother country. Indonesians and Surinamese to the Netherlands, Algerians, Moroccans, and Tunisians to France, and from many former African colonies, and Indians and Pakistanis, and, and those from the Caribbean to England. At home on national ground, bathed in nationalist stories, Europe found itself confronting former colonial subjects who had always been regarded in racial terms of inferiority and difference. Europe had blamed global ownership of so-called inferior people. But the colonies were out there, useful for profit, power, and journeys to manhood for the restless men at home and their dutiful wives and families. It's important to recognize that race was way out of sight in the mother countries until the German Nazi state converted nationalism into race hatred across the continent. In the aftermath of the war, Europe couldn't escape the post-Holocaust shadows of racial inequity along with greater diversity. And now Europe is being held accountable for the mirrored horrors of colonialism. And while the US saved Europe from itself, in the Second World War, the US hit its own totalitarian and racist reality. It had lived with that reality for over 400 years. The country was a practicing racist society within its own borders, filled with diabolical racial laws and, and policies. America's sense of Anglo-Saxon white superiority was made to justify a constructive narrative of nationalism, forging the ever-expanding frontier for settlers, eradicating Native American life on vast portions of the continent to make room for those looking for wealth and democracy, American exceptionalism, the city on the hill, manifest destiny that brought Hawaii and Cuba and the Philippines and other islands into the US orbit of imperialism. And finally, climatically in the 1950s, the moral ideological superior and military leader of the world. The counter story is that for over nearly 300 years, blacks have been trying to free themselves 
and ourselves of this racism and hypocritical denial about democracy and justice. The civil rights movement was a monumental undertaking with heroic achievements. It tested the power of racism and found, not surprisingly, that racism would continue to fight back. The Trump administration over a hundred years after the Civil War provided opportunities for renewed racial-based power with executive approval from the White House itself. In desperate attempts to sustain racism and deny the realization of an inclusive democracy and pluralism, opposition forces have recently brought the country to the edge of disaster. In January 6, 2021 was the outbreak of a new kind of civil war. In these more hopeful Biden times, we are very much in the midst of a battle over democracy and social equity. I'm hopeful for America, despite, as well as because of its aspirations for democratic fulfillment. I'm less confident about Europe. Fortress Europe is unsteady and in many respects, unwilling to figure out how to confront race and colonialism. Right-wing parties throughout the continent are building power on nationalist racial platforms. Center and left-oriented European parties seek new formulations of democracy will diminish the forces of racism, but they too operate in the grip of fear, fear of more immigration from Africa and the Middle East, fear of Islam, Islam challenging Christian and secular Europe, and fear that the more radical attempts at racial reconciliation in the US will shake European societies as well. In forging a new American nationalism, America has created a flood of academic studies and ideologies focused on race, forces of protest, such as Black Lives Matter, myriad initiatives on the ground to increase social justice. European countries are watching us and we are watching ourselves. Will America's long delayed confrontation with its racial history succeed? Will it allow extreme anti-democratic forces to impose violence in the exercise of political participation? Will America be able to assert leadership in global affairs after the isolationist policies of the last administration? Will America in Biden times drive Europe's, Europe's encounter with its own racism and national narratives? We cannot know, but the two continents remain tied together by their race-based pasts, uh, their national aspirations, and attempts at global leadership. And that is Judith Goldstein, founder and executive director of Humanity in Action, a lecture shared with Radioactive by the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Check tonight's show notes for a link to Judith's conversation, because we only had time for a portion of it, as well as that of Charles Person. And now joining me again, Felicia Maxfield Barrett from the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy to talk about the nonprofit's World Affairs Lecture Series and what's in store in the fall. So you're on hiatus for the summer, and then you'll start up in the fall. Any sneak peek or inklings of what you have planned for the lecture series when you start again in the fall? 
Yeah. So, you know, I, I put full faith in my events director to, to pick out the best lectures that are appropriate at the moment. But if I were to give my pie in the sky dream, uh, 2021 is a really unique anniversary year. There's three big anniversaries that I would love to see us discuss. Um, one is that uh, in 1971, we had ping pong diplomacy, which has just the best story behind it. Opening up China. Um, Exactly. Exactly. You know, and and the Department of State and President Nixon at the time did some great work around creating relationships with China. But I would argue that it wouldn't have happened had this um, young hippie from Berkeley, California, who's on the ping pong team, accidentally get on the China bus and start talking to the, the team captain through a translator. And in a 10 minute bus ride, they were best friends. They were exchanging cultural gifts. The, the team from China gave the, the Berkeley kid this beautiful painted scarf. The Berkeley kid gave the team captain a T-shirt that said, let it be. Um, and I just thought that that was you know, such a great exchange of, of gifts. And then they got an invitation to go toward China, which had not happened in that time period. It was not permissible for people from America to be allowed to openly tour China. And that happened um, from one person talking to another in an uh, unexpected opportunity. Yep, exactly, exactly. So there is a, a one person who really will um, open up and discuss it. She owns a, a ping pong, a table, a table tennis shop in Portland, Oregon. So I'm in conversation with her to see if we can get her to come to Utah to do an in-person lecture. Um, it's also sadly the 20th anniversary of 9-11. So I would mm. love to talk about how has history changed since that time? How do we treat um, people from around the world yeah. since that time? What have been some big policy changes? But there's the um, radicalism that we were talking about 20 years ago directed outward. And now we have to have the conversation about radicalism in our own country. Exactly, exactly. And then it's been 10 years since South Sudan has become an independent country. So I would love to get somebody to come in and talk about what has happened in South Sudan. I feel like that is a country that we don't pay enough attention to. And there's some interesting policy, there's some interesting um, uh, political agendas taking place in that country right now. And we just this week had a woman who is a new American, a Utahn from South Sudan, sharing her story on Radioactive. So I think those are three great ideas for the fall for your lecture series. Once again, what's the website for Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy? It's utahdiplomacy.org. Thanks so much for giving some time to us today on Radioactive. And I know that on that website, there are a lot of resources, including the full conversations that we're sharing tonight and other things that you did during COVID, such as a fireside chat, right? Yep. Fireside chats. Um, it, they were really meant to highlight citizen diplomats here in Utah doing really cool international work. Um, and it's everything from how the Great Salt Lake has similar attributes to what used to be lakes on Mars. That one is a fascinating conversation. Um, there's one coming up on Friday with uh, Mr. Gerald Brown, who is a program coordinator for the Refugee Services Office, talking about refugees. Um, and then geopolitical, human, international relations from Nils Bergson this season. 
So much good stuff from just one nonprofit, Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Thanks for all the work you do in our community on behalf of it to help us think outside the box and extend that hand of friendship. Oh, thank you so much. And that's Felicia Maxfield-Barrett of the Utah Council for Citizen Diplomacy. Check tonight's show notes for links to the organization and those full conversations that we excerpted tonight from UCCD's World Affairs Lecture Series. And that is our show. Radioactive is a production of Listeners Community Radio of Utah, which means it's only possible with the support of listeners like you who become contributing members. More details online at krcl.org. Tomorrow night on the show, it will be Punk Rock Farmer Friday, and we're going to have a preview of the farmer's markets opening up across the state. I'm Laura Jones. Thanks for listening, and have a great night.